Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 24, verses 1 through 11. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and he put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and, be, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. This is the living word of God for us today. Amen. What an interesting passage we have a chance to look at this morning. Aren't you glad you came in Exodus 24 week? I've never in my life heard a sermon of the, on this text. In fact, I kind of forgot it was there until I dug it up the last couple of weeks and, and uh, spent some time in it. What a marvelous passage as it relates to the table. And I'll explain why as we go through it. Let me, uh, I was going to say, let me set the table for you, but I, I guess I'll just walk right into that. Let me set the table and give you some context for the series that we're in. It's a series we started last week called A Generous Table. And uh, we're doing something that we don't often do. We're, we're picking a biblical theme, in this case, the theme of food, or a theme of a table, or a, a dining table. And we're tracing it throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And the reason we're doing this is because we've come to believe that this is one of the most important symbols, one of the most important pictures, one of the important icons in the scripture, if you think about it, that God invites his people to sit around a table. God provides for his people from Genesis to Revelation. The core question that you and I are asking is the question that Lloyd introduced last week from Psalm 78. It's this question, can God spread a table in the wilderness? Now, the context in Psalm 78 is the Hebrew people were wandering in the desert and they're wondering, can God show up for us in this? Like, this is not what we were hoping for. This is not how we thought life would turn out. Anybody ever been there? <laughs> this is not how I thought life would turn out. And so, you know, intuitively, we're always asking, God, can, can you show up for me and provide for me in my wilderness? Can you spread a table in the wilderness? Lloyd made a comment last week. He said, you know, at some point in time this week, something's going to hit you, and you're going to ask that question. And I thought, well, I don't think so, but it happened to me. 
about middle of the week, I was just wrestling through some things. I had some attitudes in my own heart about some things and some, some, somebody said something to me and I overreacted to it. And like, where did that come from? And the more I dug, I realized, oh, there's some insecurity there. There's some fear there and there's some ugliness right there that I've been pushing down. And as I interacted around that, I, I, it wasn't enjoyable, it wasn't fun. It had implications for different relationships in my life. And, and here I was, I thought, man, I'm, man, I'm kind of stuck. Can God spread a table for me in my wilderness? Two weeks ago, I got a call from a friend of mine whose marriage is a wreck. Can God spread a table for me in my wilderness, he asked. He didn't use those words, but that's what he was asking. Last weekend, I had a chance to spend some time with another friend who just lost his job in an organizational restructure. And this was two months after he just moved his family in a brand new house <laughs> so he could be closer to this new job. And now he's laid off. Can God spread a table for me in my wilderness? And as Lloyd walked us through the scripture, literally starting in Genesis and ending in Revelation last week, the answer to that question is yes, he can. He does. He has. That's what God is up to, spreading tables in wildernesses. And the big idea from last week is the provision in your life is found from God around a table. The answer to the question, yes, God can provide. He does provide. So the big idea was the table is the symbol of God's provision for his people all throughout the Bible. This week, we're gonna take that another step forward and we're gonna say there's something else besides the provision of God that you need, something you need even more than stuff, something you need more than provision. You're gonna find it at the table as well. Now, the passage that Joe read is a little mysterious. It's got some strange things in it. We're gonna take plenty of time to unpack it, but I wanna also take some time to set it up so you get the context for it. I wanna set it up in two ways. The first way is some mental space I want to get your brain in. The second way is some biblical context that leads up to Exodus 24. So let's start with the mental space. There are probably four or five meals that we all eat every year in kind of an annual rhythm cycle. They usually correspond to the major holidays of our year. Think about this. There's the Thanksgiving meal, Christmas. Usually a meal associated in there somewhere on Christmas Day. Then you get into the springtime. You've got Easter. We're gonna get dressed up for church. We're gonna go home. We're gonna eat a meal. There's certain foods we associate with each of these. Think about it. We have our own family traditions. Then you get to the summertime. And you know the one that I gravitate towards is the 4th of July. I mean, I'm eating hamburgers with somebody on 4th of July. I mean, we're, we're grilling out. We're cooking out. Right? We're doing the all-American cookout on the 4th of July. And if you think about the rhythm of your year sort of coming around, gathering at tables as community and then spreading out and then gathering at another table and celebrating and spreading out, gathering at tables, think about the rhythm of your own day. Three times a day, you be sitting down at a table eating food. So there's this rhythmic element of meals. And I started thinking about what makes these holiday meals so special and significant. And in my family, the recipes we use for Thanksgiving, for example, are recipes that came from my mom and grandma and my wife's mom and grandma. And the people around the table at Thanksgiving is usually going to be our immediate family, plus any relatives that are in town, maybe some close friends that don't have a place to go. In other words, it's a communal meal. And in a sense, you can't fully separate out the food on the table from the people around the table. The importance of those meals is not just what you eat, it's whom you eat it with. Now, 
That's the mental space I want you to be in. Now I want you to think about some Old Testament context. Genesis chapter one, God spreads the first table. What do you mean by that? He made human beings and put them in a garden where there was everything they needed, all the food that they needed. And not only was the food there, but God's presence was there as well. I don't know if they had a literal table, but they had to have some place to eat, didn't they? I imagine Adam and Eve walking with God in the garden. We know that they were doing that, but I also imagine Adam and Eve sitting around the table, tasting these things with the Lord and saying, man, that's good. That's great. And God says, everything that's here, you're free to eat except for one thing. Isn't it interesting that it was a food choice that brought sin into the world? That's kind of fascinating. So as Lloyd said last week, the Garden of Eden was essentially the first table of provision that God spread for his people. And he read this quote that I I really like, and it's by this theologian named Norman Wiersbe, food is God's love made edible. And what I think what Wiersbe is essentially saying is, if you think about food, you think about the garden of provision that God put all this delicious stuff in the garden, and the food that God provided and the presence of God himself commingled together. And you can't fully separate out the food on the table from the people around the table. That's God's design for the table, his provision and his presence. Now, with that choice of Adam and Eve to take the one thing that was not a gift for them, what they essentially told the Lord was, they said, well, look, look, um, the table you have spread for us is nice, but not enough. You're holding out on us. So they shifted, if you want to think of it this way, from an abundance mentality to a scarcity mentality. It's we need more. You've not given us, God, everything that we need for fullness of life. There's, there's something out there that you're keeping from us. So they separated themselves from relational intimacy with God and took and ate and were separated from God, separated from one another in a sense, because now they're blaming and arguing, bickering, and, and even their own hearts are disintegrated. They feel shame for the very first time. They realize they're naked. That, what does that mean? That means they realize there's something ugly about themselves. So they hide. You see, when they chose independence from God, they essentially stepped back away from his table and the fellowship in the garden was fractured. The story of the rest of the Bible is God's plan to bring his people back around the table. That's a really great way of understanding the biblical story, by the way. You see that all the way through. This table keeps coming back up. And so this morning, what I wanna do is focus more on the Old Testament and show you how the Old Testament centers around a table. Next week, Lloyd will be back and he'll teach on how the New Testament centers around a table. And specifically this morning in Exodus 24, we find the moment in time where God brings people back in relationship with him. Ever since Adam and Eve, garden, Genesis 3, this table fellowship had been broken until Exodus 24. And God's going to restore it, at least in part. Now, turn to Exodus 24, if you haven't already. And and to get us caught up in the context of the book of Exodus, God's chosen people, Israel, had been enslaved in Egypt. God set them free through Moses in a series of miracles that God performed through Moses. Then he brought them out of Egypt to Mount Sinai, 
where his very presence came down on the mountain. You see what's happening here? He rescued them from slavery and brought them to his home, so to speak, where his presence was, at least his presence in that moment. And there he met them at Sinai and there he initiated a covenant with them. What's a covenant? It's just a technical way to talk about a promise between two parties to enter into a relationship with one another. God called Moses up on the mountain and said, listen, I'm gonna make a covenant relationship with this nation, with this people. And here are the stipulations and the rules of the covenant. And then Exodus 24 describes the very moment that the covenant ceremony sealed the covenant. So think about our wedding ceremonies. This is the best way that I, the analogy that I have to think about this. You know, man or boy meets girl, they court, they fall in love. Then he's gonna bring her into his home, so to speak, to dwell with her. And before that happens, they gather their friends and family around and they have a marriage ceremony that seals the bond between them. And, you know, legally and spiritually, they're now one. That's essentially what's happening in Exodus 24 between God and the nation of Israel. They're entering into a formal ceremony. Now let's jump into the text with all of that in mind and we'll see how this covenant ceremony works its way out and what in the world it has to do with food and a meal. Look at verse one. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel and worship from afar. Now, why does it start this way? And who are all these people? You know Moses, most of, you know, most of us have probably heard of Aaron. Aaron was the priest, a relation of Moses. Nadab and Abihu are the sons of Aaron. They're also in that priestly clan. And then elders, there's 70 of the elders. So these are representative of the nation itself. So in a marriage ceremony, the groom is gonna have his best friends. The bride's gonna have her best friends. It's not the only friends the groom has or the bride has, but they're representative of the community. That's what's happening in this marriage ceremony. So God's calling them up. Look at verse two. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near and the people shall not come up with him. So you kind of have three layers. Moses at the, the, can go up, up to the top, closer to God, so to speak. Then you have the other 73 that are down a little lower and then all the people at the foot of the mountain. And when you first hear this, you think, that seems unfair. You know, what's so special about Moses? You know, he was a man just like, I'm a man. He was a human being. He was broken and twisted and fallen, and he was. But God had chose him to be a mediator. And so what that meant was God was gonna speak to the people through a man. That's theologically significant. And God was gonna interact with the people through a man, through a human being as mediator. It's theologically significant. Moses was that individual when he was at his best, Moses' will, his human will, and God's will were melded together so that what God willed, Moses willed, Moses would do. Moses wasn't always at his best. But there are certain times in the narrative, and this is actually fascinating. I don't have long for this rabbit hole. But there are certain times where it said, God said or God did. And you look at the action, it's actually Moses saying and doing so is God doing it or is Moses doing it? The answer is yes. God's doing it through Moses, the mediator. Now, all that will come into play a little bit later. Hold that in your mind. Now, let's go on in the text and we're gonna cover a fairly long section, verse three to verse eight, which actually describes the ceremony itself. 
And there's some weird things in here, which I'll explain um, after we read it. Let me just read three to eight. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. The people answered with one voice and said, all the words of the Lord have spoken, we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he read, or he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Sounds so, so strange, but, but wouldn't one of our wedding ceremonies seem strange to somebody from another culture if they had no concept of what was going on, you know? Like, why do you separate out the men and the women? And what, what's with the fancy white dress and the guy standing at the center with the sacred book and the rings and the candles? What's the significance of all of this? So let me give you a little tip, so you can, or a couple tips to understand what's going on here from this cultural context. Notice that Moses built an altar and 12 pillars. The altar represents God, The pillars represent the nation, the 12 tribes of Israel. So Moses is visually depicting this formal ceremony. And he would have built them opposite of each other to show literally, visually, this is a covenant between two parties, God represented by the altar and us, 12 tribes of Israel represented by these 12 pillars. Blood was almost always used in covenant ceremonies in the ancient Near East. This would not have been strange to the people of Israel, although it seems weird to us because we don't use blood this way. Half of the blood went on the altar to represent God. Half of it was put in basins and then later put on the people. It's possible that it was put directly on them, probably sprinkled, you know, so the priest would have gone out and sprinkled on the people. It's possible that what the narrator intends is it was put on the representatives of the people, which is the 12 pillars. It's possible either way. The idea is the same. The blood's going on both to represent we're in a bond, we're in a blood covenant. Now, just like a wedding ceremony, the highest point of the ceremony are the vows. And vows are pronounced. Let's put verse seven back on the screen if we could. Then he took the book of the covenant, this is Moses, and read it in the hearing of the people. Stop. Those are God's words. The book of the covenant is God's promise. This is all that I'm gonna do for you, Israel. That's the covenant. Notice who's reading them. Moses is reading them. He's the mediator. He's reading them on behalf of God. Moses is speaking for God. And then the back half of the verse, and they, the nation, said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. God's vows, nation's vows. Now you move on to verse nine and we're gonna see what happens immediately after the formal ceremony. Look, check check this out. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders went up. Verse 10, and they saw the God of Israel. Now you should sort of feel like this, whoa. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. Verse 11, we'll just talk about the first half right now of verse 11. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Why is that last little comment in there? Does it stand out to anybody? It should. 
It's like, why does the author go out of his way to say he did not lay his hand? Because they'd seen God and lived. And you weren't supposed to be able to see God and live because he's so other, he's so holy. He's just so, I mean, the, the imagery on Mount Sinai was of a cloud and lightning and fire. And now the people are seeing him. How could they see God and be unharmed? Because the blood of the covenant was on them. Because they're now in a new relationship with him. There's something different about their relationship with God. And now they can experience his presence in a more profound and direct way. Now we get to the back half of verse 11. And here's where the table comes in. Verse 11b. They beheld God and ate and drank. So I want you to see something. The very first thing that happens after they're formally united with God in this strange covenant ceremony is they go up into the presence of God to see him and eat and drink with him. That's what, what verse 11 is seeing. They, they saw God and they ate and drank. I mean, the implications there, they're with God, they're seeing him, eating and drinking with him. I can't even imagine what that would have been like. You know, and we don't know how much of God they're seeing. There's some in, in, indication here that maybe they only really saw his feet. You know, Who knows? But the bottom line is the, 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 the author is going out of his way to say they were with him, they saw him, and they were eating, and they were drinking. The covenant ceremony led to a meal just like our wedding ceremonies lead to a meal, a reception, a celebration. The table of fellowship has been restored at least in part, between God and man. The whole point of the ceremony is to bring mankind back into relationship with God and don't miss how that new fellowship, renewed fellowship, is symbolized and celebrated at a table with food and drink. This moment is so important in human history. Because when was the last time that mankind ate and drank with God? Genesis 1 and 2. Around the table in the garden. And now here we are around another table with food. This is how God relates to his people. He's showing up with food. He's showing up around a table, so to speak. I want you to think about something. Food was the way that Adam and Eve went wrong. And food is the way God restored the relationship with his people. Now, all this is in part, not yet in full. Okay, you can just hold this tension. It's just 74 of them that are the ones seeing him and eating with him, but they represent the whole nation. And so the point is this. I have led you to this place to eat at a table. And I'm providing for you with food and I'm providing with you for you with me, my presence. Provision of God, presence of God shared around a table. Now, I want you to see how significant this meal is because this meal becomes the prototype for a whole series of meals that the Israelite people eat annually in the presence of the Lord. And, and this is where my mind kind of got blown as I studied this this last week. So in the, in the covenant itself, you know, it says they read the book of the covenant. Well, what's the book of the covenant? Well, it's the covenant. We have it in Deuteronomy and it's summarized earlier in Exodus. What you actually find is God requires that all the males 
from all the, all, the, all the people, gather together three times a year and have a big feast, have a big festival. Well, why the males? Well, they represent the whole nation. And, and besides, they weren't able to have everybody from that nation come. They couldn't sustain that economically. So the, the males are to come three times a year at Passover, at Pentecost, and at the Feast of Tabernacles. And at the center point of each of those festivals is a meal. Now, I'm gonna get technical with you for just a couple of minutes because this really matters. The Book of the Covenant stipulates three kinds of sacrifices that the people are to offer. Two of them are mentioned in this passage. There's a, uh, there, there's a burnt offering, which you consume the whole meat. So the, you, you, the animal is killed and it's literally consumed and the burnt offering goes up to God, so to speak. Then there's a peace offering which is mentioned in our text. Peace offerings are also sometimes called fellowship offerings. It was this kinds of offering that you are to offer at these three meals, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. The difference between a peace offering and a burnt offering is with a peace offering, the animal is not consumed at the fire. The animal is killed at the altar. Then the priest goes and butchers the animal and sends it home with the family to eat they actually eat the offering. And there was always more than one, what one family could eat and they were required to eat it in 48 hours or less. And so they had to share a table, sitting down with that offering at the center. And here's what's most amazing. They are instructed in the covenant that when they eat these three special meals every year, the fellowship offering in the center, they are to eat them, quote, in the presence of the Lord. And I don't think that just means do all that you do in the presence of the Lord. I think there's something unique going on here. I think there is a particular way that God's presence showed up around the table of these festival meals. Think about that for a minute. Each of these major festivals that God calls people to was a moment that the people ate and drank with God. It brought them back to the mountain of Mount Sinai. Now it's not just 74 of them eating with God. It's the whole nation. They say, you are to eat in the presence of the Lord. The Lord's gonna be with you in a particular way with your friends and family as you sit down around a table and eat a meal together. Each festival meal was a moment of communion between God and Israel. It was a way that God chose to express his presence with his people. He invited them to a table to meet him there. Now, there's so many cool implications of this. First of all, it gives you a whole new way of thinking about these major sacrificial festivals. It's like God wants to sit at a table with his people and he's gonna call them to the table three times a year and they're gonna eat in the presence of the Lord. This is profound. I, I wanted to take now to, to our application. Like, what do we do with this? Because most people in this room aren't Jewish by culture, by blood. Some of, some of you are, most of you aren't. I'm not. Does this apply to us? Are we supposed to start doing these meals, et cetera, et cetera? So I wanna really think about how this uh, applies. And I wanna start in this place. The table is such a powerful image because it's the biblical picture, both of the provision of God and the presence of God. We saw the provision last week. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? Answer is yes. Now this week we see the presence of God. How are we to experience God's presence? Around a table. Eat in the presence of the Lord, etc. The table is the means by which God shares community with his people. 
it's impossible to fully separate out the provision of God on your table from the giver of the provision who wants to be present at your table. I want you to do a little thought experiment with me. Uh, imagine that you're invited over to a, a friend's house and maybe it's you and your, your spouse going, uh, maybe it's just you, maybe it's your family, but th- this is a, a, a person or a family that you've really been looking forward to getting to know. Maybe you're like, I, I like them, I wanna spend more time with them. Now they've invited you over for a meal and you get there right on time because you're, you're eager. They open the door, they greet you with big smiles and hugs, you know, they bring you in hand you a drink, they, they take you to the dining room and there's a beautiful table, looks maybe a lot like this and the food's already on it and it's right out of the oven. You can tell because you still, you see the heat emanating off and the smell is so good. You're so eager to sit down with these people and begin this meal and, and they say, say this, is, this is our provision for you and we want you to enjoy it but we've got another appointment we're out of here. We got somewhere else to be. But, but we've provided everything you need. It's all here around the table. And by the way, if you're still hungry, there's more on the stove and there's more drinks in the fridge. Make yourself at home. We'll see you some other time. Like your heart would be disappointed. The food would not taste good, no matter how good it actually was. You'd feel slighted. You know, all this stuff would go through your mind. Why is that? Because we, even in our culture, we know an invitation to a table with another group of people is not primarily about food. It is about community. It's about fellowship. It's about presence. It's about relationship. Now, we understand this in our minds. And, and I, I want you just to dial in with me on this part, okay? So, you know, been snoozing off. Just wake up right here, okay? And then ride the rest of the message and you think you'll be all right. God's deepest desire for you is so much more than his provision for you. We tend to just pray to God like, oh God, I'm lacking in my life. Would you fill my table? Or pray to God, say, I don't, how do I do this? I've got troubles, I've got problems. And he, listen, he wants to provide. Can he spread a table for you in your wilderness? Absolutely, he will provide for you. But his desire for you is so much deeper. His desire is not just provision. His desire is presence. His desire is table fellowship. He doesn't want to spread a table for you and say, I've got another appointment. I'm out of here. He wants to invite you to sit down. He wants to be with you around the table of the areas of provision in your life. You see this. So here's what this means. Every area of provision in your life is a means to an end, not the end itself. your family, your marriage, your grandkids, your kids, your friends, if you're a, a single adult, your community of people, um, your, your job, your career, your vacations, your house, all the good stuff that you like, your entertainment, all the things that we want to fill our lives with, nothing wrong with all that stuff. It's not the end. It's provision as a means to an end. Food is a means to an end of community of communion, of fellowship and relationship. God spreads tables of provision in your life in order to meet you there, to invite you to eat and drink with him around the table. Now, I'm gonna scoot this back because I'm gonna get right in your business here for a few minutes. Sometimes you look around your table and it's not everything you wish it was. I look at this table right here and I'm like, man, those grapes look good and that bread looks good, but where's the meat? 
Sometimes you may sit around your literal table at home and you look around and you say, not everybody is here that I wish were here. For some of you, your meal table is a place of loneliness. What's tricky about living in this area is you can be invited over to dinner and you can have a great time and then leave and be thinking subtly in your mind, why don't we have a swimming pool? Why don't we have three-car garage? Why don't we have a TV room? Do you, do you see what I mean? You know, you, you sit at these other tables and suddenly your table looks insufficient. Suddenly it's like, well, where's God's provision for me? Well, sure, he spread a table, but not like their table. Sometimes what's spread on your table is not all that you wish it was. The provision of God is not all that you would dream for. Isn't that true in most of our lives, most of the time? And yet the invitation is always the same. God would say, come and sit and eat because I will meet you there. God would say, I am enough. It's not about what's here. It's about who's across from you at your table. The table is not just representative of the provision of God. In a more profound way, it's representative of the presence of God. Because what your human soul most needs and most desires is to be known and accepted. To be known and cared for to be known and respected, to be known and loved. You fill in the blank. We all need to be known and we need to be approved of. We need to be seen. Since Adam and Eve were seen in their nakedness and loved. And then as soon as they stepped out of relationship with God, it's like, oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? And ever since then, we've been trying to find approval. Ever since then, we've been trying to be known and loved, known and accepted, known and respected. And we, we try to find that at these tables over here of career and entertainment. We've kind of, these tables over here of stuff we shouldn't be engaging in and looking at in sin areas of our lives. These tables over here of other relationships that are good, but we try to eat from the table of these relationships far more than what actually can be provided for us. And God was saying, no, look, I've spread a table for you in your wilderness. It's not all that you want. It's not all that you dream of, but it's where I am. Come and eat. Come and drink. Now, there's a little verse in Psalm 18 or Psalm 16 that I want to I want to leave us on before before we culminate all of this by eating in the presence of the Lord at the Lord's table. If we'll put Psalm 16:11 on the screen, I want you to see something in this. This is David, a man after God's own heart. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. You see, David's acknowledging provision matters, right? You make known to me the path of life. I need to eat. I need to be provided for it. David had a lot of stuff, by the way. He was wealthy. He was a king. He had all, all that he wanted. But he says, listen, you know where fullness of joy is? It's not in all that stuff. It's in the presence of God. Men and women, what you desire most is fullness of joy. We, we could call it all kinds of other things. Satisfaction, fulfillment, everything else in life. It's, it's a wholehearted life. We can call it that. We, we do call it that here. You know what it comes down to? It's fullness of joy. Where is fullness of joy found? According to God's word, it's in the presence of the Lord. How do we come into the presence of the Lord? This is where I want you to go ahead and close your Bibles. And I want to ask the ushers to get ready to pass the elements of the Lord's table. And don't start passing them yet, but if you would just get ready to pass them.
how do we sit at the table of the Lord and experience the presence of the Lord? Listen, the only way the people of Israel could do that is through Moses, their mediator. Okay, he was the only one that could go up the mountain, you see. But he provided a way for them to eat and drink with the Lord. He provided a way. Now, the problem with Moses was he was not perfect. So I told you earlier, when he was at his best, his will and God's will were one and the same and God could speak and Moses would speak and God would do and Moses would do. But there were other times in Moses' life where he was not melded perfectly with his father. There were other times when he tried to provide for himself and he tried to provide for his nation apart from God's will. And so after Moses' death becomes a consistent theme all throughout the the Psalms and the prophets and the rest of the writings, all the way through the rest of the Old Testament is, if only another would come, if only we had another Moses, but one who would not fail and and one that that would mediate for us forever. And then in the fullness of time, God sent his son, a man who never failed, a human being whose will was perfectly melded with the Father's will at all times because he and the Father were one. Interestingly, just like Moses, Jesus also climbed a hill to intercede for the people, but instead of at the top of the hill eating the peace offering, Jesus became the peace offering. And so now you see why I spent some time earlier talking about the different kinds of offerings because there was one offering that was not meant to be consumed in the flame but was meant to become provision for the people to eat. And as they would eat that slain animal, they would do it in the presence of the Lord. It was God's invitation for a people around the table And so Jesus, at the Passover supper, having just eaten one of those meals, he takes the bread and he says, this is your provision. This is my body, which is broken for you. He takes the cup and says, this is the blood of the new covenant. And he invites them to eat and drink. So I want to ask the ushers to go ahead and start passing out the elements. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ at any point in time, you've believed that Jesus is the peace offering that reunites you and God, that you've put your faith in his life, death, and resurrection for you. Take it. Take it this morning. You know, some of you are like, well, I have to be worthy to take the the meal. You know, I don't have all my sin confessed. Well, take it. Spend some time right now talking to God, but you are not unworthy to eat and drink the body and blood of Christ if by faith you've put your faith in him. So take it and eat it this morning. Some of you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ before, and just maybe there's been something that connected today. And by the way, that's not me. That's the Spirit of God. If you understand this morning that Jesus was the peace offering who gave his life so that you could be back around the table of fellowship with God so you don't have to eat alone, I want you, through faith, to take this morning. Literally, your first step of faith as a new believer, a new follower of Jesus Christ can be eating the body and bread symbolized in what is being passed out right now. So if that's you this morning, I want you to take it. And and I want you to all think about this, whether you're putting your faith in Christ for the first time this morning or you've done this ever since you were young. I just want you to think about it this way. 
what's being passed around right now is a tiny little morsel. Like a lot of us are hungry right now for lunch. I know I am. This little cracker is not gonna satisfy your hunger. This little cup is not gonna satiate your thirst. So in one way, it's small, but I want you to see it's everything. It is the provision of God for you at the table. And it brings you into the presence of God. This is so profound. We eat these things, we drink these things. It goes down into our body. There's a sense of communion that's even deeper than what the men experienced on the top of Mount Sinai when they beheld God and ate and drank. There's a sense that we are in Christ is the language that Paul uses in the New Testament because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God indwells you through the Spirit. There is a profound community that is true right now. God's provision and God's presence right here. So will you not take the provision God has made for you? Will you not drink the provision that God has made for you? Will you not do this by faith so that you can eat and drink in the presence of the Lord who now invades you through your faith in Christ? Will you not come to the table? Come to the table. Let us be at the table in this moment and let us celebrate our provision and the presence of God. So now take the bread in your hand. And Jesus said, this bread is the body that is broken for you. In other words, it's your provision. And then he said, and you eat this, you're gonna eat it in remembrance of me. In other words, remember that it's not just a provision for you. I'm here, I'm with. Remember me in this moment. Let's eat in the presence of the Lord. Now I want you to take the cup and I'm gonna ask you to do something that's a little strange, but there's a lot of strange things in Exodus 24. So we're just gonna live into this this morning. I'm gonna ask you to stand up. If you were here last week, Lloyd asked you to do the same thing and I really liked it. We're gonna do it again. I want you in just a moment, I want you to exchange this cup with someone else. Maybe someone you came in this room with, maybe someone you never even known because the communion meal is never meant to be eaten alone. The communion meal is a communion, not just with God, but with one another. We are the body of Christ. So I want you, as you give this cup to someone else, I want you to say, this is the blood of Christ for you. Go ahead and do that now. This is the blood of Christ for you. So Jesus took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, as often as you drink this, drink this in remembrance of me. Let's drink the cup in the presence of the Lord. After Jesus celebrated that meal with his followers, it said they went out and sung a hymn. What they were doing was worshiping the giver of their provision, worshiping the giver of the meal that they had just experienced. Let's do the same, shall we? Let's sing together.